welcome to talc teaching and learning consultation skills this is the talc talks podcast helping everyone who sees patients to improve their consultation skills to get better outcomes and this approach can even increase your job satisfaction Welcome to this podcast from TALC, Teaching and Learning Consultation Skills, brought to you by Health Education England North West. I'm Avril Danchak, a GP and educator in Manchester. I'm going to be talking about Module 5, TALC 5-6 today. This is a chapter about therapeutic conversations and thinks about the skills for patients who are distressed or who have mental health issues. I'm going to discuss this in two sections. First, I'm going to explore the powerful therapeutic effects that good conversations can have, even when they're quite short. And secondly, I'm going to be exploring ways to promote good mental health rather than just focusing on the symptoms and the distress which often bring patients to us. There are three approaches which can really increase the effectiveness of our clinical conversations, even in shorter consultations and outside mental health settings. Before doing that, I want to reflect a little bit about the skills that are needed for therapeutic conversations. Therapeutic conversation uses a complex set of skills, and you can't just define it by saying, here's a few sub-skills. All the skills of the TALC modules 1 to 6 will be brought into use. The skills of understanding feelings and making empathic connections are especially important because this builds the relationship between clinician and patient. This relationship then becomes part of the healing process. Using all the explanation and personalised care planning skills of TALC 4 and 5 will enable clinician and patient to work collaboratively towards better outcomes. These skills can also be used in situations when the clinician and patient are not face-to-face, for example, telephone or video. Coping with mental health problems on the telephone or on a video call can pose extra difficulties for clinicians. Building a relationship with empathy and compassion is even more necessary than when face-to-face because it's slightly more difficult when there are not those interpersonal cues that we get when we're in a room together. Clinicians can still develop their skills in building therapeutic relationships when consulting by telephone or video, though. This may mean more explicit expressions of empathy. For example, saying, it sounds like work has been extremely difficult and stressed for you recently, rather than just nodding kindly, as you would do face to face. We can use gentle and kind tones of voice. For example, smiling when greeting the patient can even be heard through the telephone. And using positive phrases such as, let's work out what we can do now to help this situation. After all, many life coaches and counsellors do all their work on the telephone with great success. And organisations such as Samaritans have been supporting people on the telephone for decades. In a telephone call, the clinician must engage all the relationship building skills of TALC 2, skills for building effective relationships. And they can use information gleaned from hints, clues and cues to start to bring some positive emotional experiences into the consultation. This may mean empathy and expressions of care or compassion at first, 
but then it can also include what David Unwin calls complementary therapy, which means identifying and commenting on strengths and positive aspects of the patient's experience. The human value of face-to-face -face consultations for mental health problems is, of course, massive. Many anxieties and worries can be inflamed by remote consulting strategies, which can feel impersonal to some patients. Although other patients who are suffering mental distress can find it comforting to be able to consult a clinician while they're at home in a, what they feel to be a safe environment. After a face-to-face -face assessment, telephone or video consultation can be a very useful adjunct in follow-up and can help to build an effective relationship over time and build continuity of care, which plays a very important and therapeutic role in promoting good mental health. The theme of this chapter could really be summed up in the phrase, the ear is as mighty as the scalpel. And I hope in the exploration that follows, we'll be able to see some ways in which this is really true. In the second half of the 20th century, consultations were often only five minutes long in primary care. And most people thought that nothing much therapeutic could happen in that very short time. However, the studies of Michael and Enid Balint highlighted how significant change could occur in people's mental health, even after brief conversations with an interested clinician. Many clinicians have experienced this for themselves without being able to articulate exactly what happened that was therapeutic. In more recent times, healthcare seeking behaviour has changed. There's an increasing awareness of how mental health problems can be as disabling as physical conditions. There is also better understanding of mind and body connections and how overall health and well-being is affected by social circumstances as well as by psychological and physical states. There are also more medications available for mental illness, while psychological therapies have become more available too. When combined with the increasing pressures on modern healthcare, which include a growing population, increasing comorbidities and increasing numbers of frailer elderly people, this can mean that many clinicians feel overwhelmed by patient expectations that they will manage and improve mental well-being as well as looking after physical health. As a result, clinicians may often seek to refer patients on to other services. Specialist care does have much to offer, but patients still want to talk to their own clinicians about their mental health, and they may resent being referred, almost seeing it as a way of being fobbed off. Even worse, after referral, some people may end up on long waiting lists, feeling that nothing can change in the meantime and that no one really cares about them. Many clinicians, though, are uncertain of how best to talk to people who are distressed or who have mental health problems, and they feel that there's not enough time or that someone else with more time or better skills would help a patient more. These feelings of lack of confidence increase the urge to refer on, which may not always be feasible, nor what the patient wants. This leaves many patients in limbo. Not all want drugs, and for many, drugs are actually inappropriate. Waiting times for talking therapies can be long in the UK setting, and such care is actually inaccessible in many situations. So does this mean that nothing can be done to alleviate the distress of our patients? Many of them are struggling with long-term physical problems, deprivation, relationship problems, 
or the emotional fallout of bereavement, of loss or despair. All clinicians can accompany people through some of these problems using core consultation skills without trying to fix everything. And that is a really important point. It's very healing for patients to feel that someone is concerned about them, understands them and is willing to listen to them without trying to fix their problems or make it all better. Many problems don't have a quick fix, but there's a huge healing that comes from being listened to. This chapter explores the skills of therapeutic conversations that can occur between any clinician and patient in any setting. The skills needed build on the core consultation skills of TALC modules 1 to 6. There's great value in expressing empathy and compassion when emotional disturbance is present. The skills to pick up and respond to clues and cues and to patients' concerns are also critical. Many clinicians are familiar with the idea that we should pay attention to the physical, psychological and social aspects of a patient's care. When talking with patients who are upset or disturbed, it can be helpful to reverse this order and talk about the social element, what's happening in your life, and then the psychological elements, how is that actually affecting you, with some final attention to physical elements, such as how are you eating or sleeping. It's, if it seems that there are relevant mental health or well-being issues, asking about sleep can also be a useful way to highlight this, as sleep is so often disturbed when patients are distressed. This chapter reflects on the key concepts that the Balints identified in their research, and then uses some useful frameworks to enable clinicians to feel confident in helping patients without using drugs as a default. Also, the skills use relevant referrals in a better way to enable patients to make progress even if they're waiting for other therapies. The clinical assessment, which includes whether or not there is a mental illness, because not all distressed patients are mentally ill, and assessment of risk, such as suicidal risk, are not covered in this exploration. This exploration focuses on the clinician's response when there is significant distress or disturbance and where drugs or referral have been deemed not necessary. Here are the concepts identified initially by the Balints, which help to articulate how clinician-patient's relationships can be therapeutic in their own right, even as the clinician is mainly getting on with providing ordinary good clinical care. These concepts include the doctor or any clinician as a drug, the potential collusion of anonymity that happens with multiple referrals, and something which the Balints rather poetically referred to as the mutual investment fund of a clinical relationship between a clinician of any kind and a patient. So what do they mean by the doctor or a clinician as a drug? Clinicians in modern medical practice are very aware of the potency of modern complex treatments for conditions from cancer to heart disease. The effect may be that clinicians in primary care or in non-psychiatric specialties, they can come to feel that as individuals, they have little to offer, as if anyone suitably qualified can follow the guidelines and achieve good care. However, the evidence is very clear. Clinicians are not interchangeable like widgets. A clinician's personal relationship with the patient really matters and it has massive impact on outcomes. 
There is abundant evidence for this reviewed in a book called Compassionomics, the references to which can be found in the TALC reference list. When there are emotional problems causing patients to be disturbed or distressed, the role of the individual clinician is paramount. The frameworks and skills discussed here will help clinicians to feel more confident in their supporting and therapeutic roles, especially if there are mental health difficulties. Seeing the drug clinician as a drug in their own right inevitably means that clinicians are the most commonly prescribed medication of all. I reiterate, the ear is as mighty as the scalpel. This means that attentive, empathetic listening is healing in its own right. Patients value continuity of care and they really appreciate a clinician in the role of detective who can help them make emotional sense of experiences that are sometimes puzzling for them. What do the Balints mean by a collusion of anonymity? This phrase describes what happens when a patient is bounced from one specialist to another with no one individual person taking overall responsibility for the patient as a unique individual person. This can happen, for example, if patients have symptoms that do not fit simple referral pathways, if patients have functional or persistent physical symptoms. It can also happen when patients have levels of emotional distress which make it hard for them to articulate clearly what's happening to them. It also happens when patients see a lot of different clinicians with no continuity of care. If clinicians lack the skills and confidence to discuss emotional relationship or mental health problems, patients may end up on long waiting lists for therapy that may be difficult to access anyway because of work or family issues. Being bounced from psychiatrists to other members of the mental health team or finding themselves failing to meet the inclusion or exclusion criteria for various services can also lead to patients having a very disheartening sense that no one really cares about them as an individual. If too many clinicians are involved in a person's care, even within the same primary care network or team, It can feel that patients feel that no single person knows or cares about them as an individual. Each clinician does their best in isolation, but there is no holistic view. This collusion of anonymity can actually make things worse as patients feel increasingly isolated and frustrated. Care becomes a series of transactions and the patient can almost be like a suitcase in an airport, moved efficiently from place to place, but hardly having any significant relationships with the clinicians they meet. The impersonal approaches created by increasing reliance on algorithms, electronic communications or chatbot type arrangements to deal with patients can create further collusions of anonymity. Telephone and video arrangements can be very convenient and messaging services such as Ask My GP can help patients to contact their doctors and clinicians of other kinds and can even deepen existing relationships. Such relationships which are healing and therapeutic in their own right are often unlikely to be created when communication is purely by digital means. The concept of the clinician-patient relationship being a mutual investment fund can be a helpful way to think about the value of longer-term continuity of care which has in itself been shown to improve outcomes, including improvements in mortality. The relationship between clinician and patient is seen as being like a bank. 
Both parties can make deposits in the form of listening to the other, developing trust, showing respect and having personal input. Both can make withdrawals too. The patient may draw on the clinician's time, patience and understanding and this can go the other way. At times in the context of a trusting and deeper relationship the clinician will find it much easier to say I'm not quite sure or well, I disagree with you there or even would it be okay if we speak on another occasion instead. Here is an example of how this works. A patient is talking to her clinician about her asthma and for a review of her hypertension medications. She booked a face-to-face -face appointment the next week saying, I wanted to see you about the this nasty rash. I had it last week, but I could tell it was the end of the day and you sounded exhausted, so I decided not to mention it then. The patient had in effect allowed the clinician to draw on the mutual investment. Trust and a long-term relationship had already been established, so the patient could be sure that the clinician would be responsive at the next contact. So what about mental health problems and issues that are not readily dealt with via clinical guidelines, symptom pathways and routine clinical care? At times, the patient's main difficulty will be disturbance or distress triggered by life events, by the chronic effects of poor parenting, by poverty or other social problems, sometimes problems at work, at home or due to addictions. The technique called the bathe technique and the positive bathe approaches, which are described very clearly in TALC 4.8 and TALC 5.2, are relatively simple to use and are very effective approaches for helping clinicians to have better conversations with patients about non-clinical issues or when the patient has long-term clinical problems. So now I'm going to discuss three different approaches which go beyond TALC 4.8 and TALC 5.2 and are frameworks that can help clinicians to have productive conversations when the issues are primarily concerned with mental health and well-being problems. The approaches raise the issue of what supports and promotes good mental health in daily life rather than focusing only on what has caused poor mental health. This can enable discussions about what activities patients could do to build on their strengths. In all conversations, clinicians can notice any strengths, for example, saying something like, you're clearly coping with an awful lot at the moment. You must be quite a strong person to do all that. Or by commenting on any positive coping strategies. Your plan to go out one time in the week with your friend is definitely a good idea to keep you sane and to encourage basic self-care. In this situation, you need to care for yourself. How can you make sure you get enough sleep, a bit of exercise, and perhaps food that's healthy for you? The basic frameworks that can help clinicians to begin these kinds of discussion include something called the RAV approach, which means recognizing, acknowledging, and validating, and is used for talking about feelings and emotions. Working effectively with online sources of support can be really helpful, particularly when people are, are awaiting referral. And finally, ensuring that your work in referring to other team members is effective. And there are some methods you can use to do that. There are going to be more complex tools discussed in a later TALC module. 
All these methods increase the potency of the clinician as the drug and help to avoid the collusion of anonymity that sometimes results from referral and lack of continuity. These conversations must build on the basic skills of building the relationship, gathering information and developing collaborative plans with the patient that are already covered in TALC modules 1 to 6. I'm going to begin by talking about the RAV approach. So the concepts of picking up clues and dealing with patients' ideas, concerns and expectations is familiar to many clinicians. And you can see details about how to acquire these skills in TALC Skills for Effective Information Gathering. Can reading between the lines make for more accurate diagnosis? And the chapter, What difference does it really make to know a patient's thoughts, concerns and hopes? Now, when picking up clues and cues reveals a patient's emotional distress or worry, it is helpful if the clinician follows this up with the RAV approach, which means R for recognising, A for acknowledging, and V for validating the feelings, which enables you to demonstrate empathy and concern. When the disturbing feelings concern illness, Clinicians often find it difficult to avoid catching the patient's anxiety or concern. So, for example, if a patient says something like, I'm really worried about something lurking there after an, an unconcerning history and a normal examination or tests, it's all too easy for the clinician to start worrying about cancer or other serious illnesses themselves, even if there's no clinical reason to do so. However, Acknowledging and validating that concern with that empathic language, something like, well, I can understand you're worried about something lurking, can lead to a more fruitful exploration. The clinician needs to remain curious and rather than catching the anxiety, explore a bit further using evocative and open-ending questions such as, how did that come to be playing on your mind? What kinds of symptoms are you talking about and what do those symptoms mean to you? Or perhaps, has anyone you know had something similar to this? Or have you had experience of such an illness in the family when you were growing up, perhaps? When the clinician recognises feelings and then acknowledges them and validates the patient's response with empathy and compassion, trust will be developed. And the patient often experiences great relief at being able to share their experiences. Naming the patient's feelings can also help to prevent the clinician catching the patient's feelings and mistaking them for their own. Many patients experiencing inevitable and difficult life events, such as bereavement, financial problems, relationship stresses, show considerable distress when speaking about them. This may mean that the clinician falls back on an intuitive comforting approach that tries to soothe tears, here is a tissue, or provide reassurance, I'm sure it'll all be fine in the end, or even to join in, oh, this is a terrible thing that's happened to you. A more helpful approach to people who are actively emoting, that's to say weeping, crying, or expressing strong feelings such as anger or shame, is to avoid touching them initially and avoid saying anything. A quiet, attentive silence can provide space and relief. Waiting for weeping to subside a little creates an opportunity to quietly say, take your time. Paradoxically, this often leads to the patient being able to gather themselves together and continue the conversation. Then it's possible to continue with the RAV approach 
First of all, recognising the feeling and naming it accurately and acknowledging it to the patient by feeding it back, by saying something like, you seem to be very angry about this situation or losing your father has been really distressing for you. Sharing feelings and being accepted and understood can provide great relief in itself and leads to the welcome feedback, thank you for listening. There is more information about this in Talk Chapter 8, Inspirations, A Thought for the Day, How is Silence, Pure Gold and Consultations. One of the most important things to remember is that recognising and accepting feelings does not mean that you have to fix them or make them go away. Simply being listened to and accepted is healing. A clinician cannot take away the pain of bereavement or the worry when somebody discovers that they've got cancer or their distress that their difficult childhood makes it difficult for them to cope in the present. But recognition and acceptance of that person as they are in that moment and showing that acceptance overtly in a summary which summarise the feelings and the facts. So, for example, you're experiencing a lot of difficulties at work and it's hard for you to get there on time, which just means you get shouted at all the time. That's making you feel very worried for the future. Doesn't mean that it's your job to fix the patient's work problems. So, if accepting and talking to patients about their feelings does help, but at the same time the clinician may feel that the patient needs more support, how can this happen by mobilising some of the other things available to patients and not having repeated very long conversations with any given individual clinician? This is a situation where it can be very helpful to work effectively with online sources of support. However, clinicians used to need to use these systems in mindful and skillful ways to make them effective. There are many forms of online support for people with mental health or emotional problems. These range from self-help groups to forums to websites or Twitter communities. Many patients will find their own way to these. However, not all of these communities or resources are helpful and the wise clinician should know how to direct patients to suitable and effective support. This does not mean referring and then forgetting the patient, which again may result the patient in feeling fobbed off. I just got a leaflet and told to go on a website. Just as other explanations and plans are personalised to the individual, suggestions for online resources need to be discussed and negotiated around the specific needs of an individual patient. There are several skills you need to use for this. Now, first of all, you need to establish that the patient has internet access, uses the internet and is willing to do so. Remember, at least 6% of the population has no such access at all. And there are many more people who do not feel comfortable using the internet for anything other than very basic purposes. And many people have no suitable device available to them. Then make an initial offer of an online resource. The clinician must establish the patient's response to the idea of using an online resource using all the skills of module four and five, effective skills for explanations and planning of personalized care. The key skill is chunking and checking as the conversation proceeds. 
see how the patient responds to an initial offer. Then the clinician must clarify how the resource might help and what it's for. Discuss with the patient how the resource might help them specifically. For example, are the resources online aimed at improving sleep? Is that what matters most to the patient? Or helping the patient to relieve anxiety or with feeling overwhelmed? The suggested resources must link to the patient's own expressed concerns and expectations and the clinician needs to understand what matters to the patient, not just what's the matter with them. Now, this also means showing the specific resource to the patient and selecting the specific item of interest. This might be a sleep diary, for example, or a good resource about dealing with stressful neighbours. And there are references to this in the written resources that go with this chapter. Find a good way to share this resource. This could be by having printable documents on your computer or having a list of websites handy. This also means the clinician must be familiar with what's in those websites to some extent so that they can select from the masses and myriad resources available something that will be useful for that patient. Then make arrangements for follow-up and review of the patient's particular issues. For example, when I see you next time, I'll be interested to see how your sleep improved after you used the online resources. It would be really helpful to see your sleep diary then. Could you bring it with you? Using simple diaries or records of sleep or other activities can be very helpful. Checking the patient's thoughts about such suggestions can also help to assess to the extent to which they buy into this approach. Asking what thoughts they now have may confirm their willingness to use the resources you're suggesting or highlight problems that may suggest a different approach will be more fruitful. Careful review of how the resources were used and what happened can provide a good start to the next conversation. Some examples of effective online support sites are shown in the written resources. Educators and clinicians would do well to browse these resources and found, find other locally available resources or download useful ones such as sleep diaries. I think some of the most useful ones are positivepsychology.com, which has many resources for thinking about how positive mental health can be maintained or improved. The Foundation for Positive Mental Health has good resources that people can use to overcome phobias, improve sleep, performance and confidence. And the Feeling Good Positive Mindset app is freely available in many NHS areas. The website www.fiveareas.com contains many useful resources to help clinicians and patients think about positive mental health and there are excellent resources at the linked site Living Life to the Full. There are also good resources about dealing with long-term pain on that site and at www.curablehealth.com. Now, all these resources can help patients while they're awaiting referral. And while awaiting referral, patients should still be followed up by the referring clinician, especially when waiting lists are long. But how can we ensure that referral to other team members is really effective? Clinicians and patients alike get, referred, get very frustrated by referrals. Sometimes waiting lists are long and disheartening, or perhaps patients do not attend appointments that the clinician feels they could have been really helpful. 
The effectiveness of a, refer of a referral increases when several factors are in place. I'm going to list these and then explore them in a bit of detail. These things help a lot. It helps when the clinician leverages their own personal connections with the person you're referring to. It helps if the clinician chunks and checks the patient's understandings and feelings about the referral and clarifies patient's expectations about what's going to happen. It helps when the clinician explores potential appointment times, locations and difficulties. And it also helps if the patient is helped to consider how to prepare for the appointment with another colleague. It's really essential to create the right follow-up too. So let's think about these things in a little bit more detail. What do I mean by saying the clinician leverages their interpersonal connections? This means linking the patient's own goals. So for example, you thought your mental health could improve if you got out a bit more to the personnel available, such as, well, my colleague MJ knows all about local activities that help people's mental health especially helping people to get out more. Shall I ask him to see you so that you could pick his brains about what might work for you? Referring to colleagues by name and making it clear that the clinician will receive and act on follow-up reports can also help the patient to feel that they are being held in a known web of professional relationships, not just being pushed away to an anonymous service. This is a powerful therapeutic tool. When the patient knows that you're going to see them again, even if that's not immediately, and that you will be looking out for communications about them, this creates a powerful sense of concern and protection. So if you say something like, and my colleague will let me know how things are going after they've seen you and whether we need to meet again. Another thing that really helps is when the clinician chunks and checks the patient's understanding and feelings about being referred. Is it really what they want? Sometimes people just want a conversation with you. Sometimes people find the concept of referral for mental health problems rather daunting and off-putting, and they're not really convinced that it's necessary or desirable for them. The next thing to do is to clarify the patient's expectations about the referral, which will usually mean afterwards discussing the exact purpose of the referral with the patient. What are they anticipating or hoping to achieve? If they just want to feel better, or if they think that the person they're being referred to will cure them or make everything marvellous, this needs to be gently unpicked. It is better to link the patient's specific goals with the services available. And this means asking questions such as, what matters to you most about the situation now? What would be the thing that would really help you the most with your current situation? What matters to you? At times, the clinician may feel referral is less appropriate. Clarifying expectations of referral may then enable the clinician to say no in a helpful manner. And there are skills in TALC 5.5, Never Say Never, which help you to say no while still saying yes. This avoids conflict and can improve outcomes. It is very useful if the clinician explores potential appointment times, locations and any potential difficulties before embarking on, on any mental health referrals. 
is attendance during the day feasible for this particular patient who may have other constraints on their time which would limit their access to counselling or wellbeing services? Is the travel going to be onerous for this person? Could there be a service base more locally that is more accessible? Or maybe a local voluntary group such as MIND, CRUZ or AA might be more appropriate for this person. Going to an appointment at a strange place can be intimidating for some people. Could the patient take someone with them the first time for support? The clinician can also help the patient to consider how to prepare for the appointment with another colleague. Many waiting lists are quite long and even a small amount of time preparing for referrals and following up afterwards will increase the engagement of the patient when they meet our colleagues in other disciplines or specialties. In advance, a patient could write some notes about their issues and identify that what they would really like to talk about. Patients could be working on improvements in well-being meanwhile. Simple exercises such as three good things or PTH, which stands for Please, Thankful and Happy, can be of great help. There are some in the resources that go with the written version of this chapter, and there are exercises for clinician well-being in Talc Module 1, 2, How Can You Go Home With Energy to Spare, which are also the kind of exercises that can be good for patients. These exercises can yield relevant material to talk about in follow-up, with a focus about what works rather than what is failing. Working on a small part of the problem in advance of a referral can also start to get things moving, albeit a bit slowly. So for example, rather than trying to completely fix my anxiety, the patient could concentrate on learning a relaxing breathing technique. Such exercises can provide further opportunities to notice and reinforce strengths and coping strategies rather than always concentrating on what's going wrong. If a clinician creates the right follow-up after any referral, this will cement relationships and increase trust. Follow-up allows the clinician to be appreciative of any positive changes and reinforce any self-management strategies. It enables the clinician to empathise with any ongoing difficulties. Inviting follow-up after such a referral improves the clinician-patient relationship and increases trust without necessarily being onerous. The clinician could contact the patient for a brief telephone call or ask the patient to leave a message with administration staff about how they got on after the referral. The clinician could schedule a follow-up telephone call or write a brief note to the patient when they've received a report from the referral. If clinicians receive reports about serious incidents related to mental health, for example, episodes of self-harm, or admission to mental health wards. A proactive contact to the patient can be really helpful. I'm calling to see how things are. I noticed you were in A&E recently. This may seem to take up time, but in the long run, time will often be saved by reaching out to vulnerable patients. The patient can be connected to relevant local services more quickly and will also get great comfort knowing that clinician is holding them in mind. This can be extremely sustaining for isolated or distressed people and reduces emergency contacts because the patient's anxiety is reduced. So will all these approaches simply increase dependence on the clinician and create even more work? This is a very valid concern. 
If the clinician considers that it is their job to fix everything and to help everyone, then clearly there's a risk that this burden will become overwhelming. However, in mental health and well-being situations, it's not the clinician's job to fix everything. The patients exist in a social and psychological environment where there are many variables that only they can control. However, the importance of the positive psychological health approaches that we've talked about here is it is the patient who takes responsibility for actions to improve their mental health. By having some positive frameworks to work with, rather than simply focusing on distress and disturbance, the clinician becomes empowered to work with and alongside the patient, rather than taking over. This podcast was brought to you by NHS Professional Educators, making training available to all.